That was some good singing. Some good dancing up here, too. That was awesome. I remember when my little girls were little and they would dance like that, too, so they don't do it as much now. All right. Well, this morning, we're going to be in a different book for a little while. Since the beginning of the year, uh, we have been steeped in the first chapters of Deuteronomy. And by now, if you've been here for any amount of time, you've learned that I believe in the value of preaching methodically, chapter by chapter, verse by verse of Scripture. And indeed, many of us have seen great reward in being challenged by our study of that sometimes difficult book of Deuteronomy. And certainly I plan to return to Deuteronomy at some point, but I have found in the past that sometimes both the preacher and the congregation can find it refreshing to study a new area of Scripture as well for a while. And so this morning marks the first Sunday in a long time where we're going to depart from the book of Deuteronomy, and instead we're going to enter into the Gospel of Luke. By beginning today in the book of Luke, we will, in a sense, also be preparing in advance for the Advent season. Uh, Since I have planned the preaching out through Christmas so that we will arrive on Christmas week at those wonderful verses that tell us about the birth of Jesus. So, to be fair, most years I do an Advent series. This year it's going to be an extended uh, series leading up to Advent. What a book of the Bible Luke is. It's, the, it's one of the four Gospels. R.C. Sproul said this about the book of Luke. He said, I'm sure that every Christian has one Gospel that stands out as his or her favorite. If I were forced to choose, I would have to select Luke's. I have studied and taught it in various settings. It seems that the more I read it, the more excited I get about it. So let's get right into the book of Luke, but let's begin by considering a concern that most believers, or probably all believers, have at times, and the concern is that most of us, at various times in our life, we have a concern about our faith. To be blunt, our faith is often lacking. We believe, but we need help with our unbelief, as the man who asked Jesus to heal his son admitted. Perhaps we believed in Christ for salvation, but often do not believe that he cares about us in this life. Maybe we feel he doesn't care what's going on in our lives, or that he's left us with a sort of faith that must be hung on to without any further encouragement or evidence of the truth of the gospel. And of course, none of this is true. But let us admit, at least to ourselves, that sometimes we do question. Sometimes we do wonder. In order to help those who have believed to have a more certain faith, Luke wrote this gospel. Today we're going to look at the introduction to the gospel of Luke, keeping in mind that hearing and reading the word of God helps us grow in confidence that the gospel is true. Let's look at the first four verses together. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things 
you have been taught. Whenever we begin a study in a new book of the Bible, it's worthwhile to take a few moments to better understand the historical context of it, who the author was, who it was written for, what the purpose of the writing was, and these sorts of things. In the case of the Gospel of Luke, it is these first four verses um, that we get in the last part of it, the purpose of the reading, and also who it was written for. Um, The general consensus of when this letter was written was in the early 60s AD. If you were in D6 this morning... We were in the book of 1 Timothy, which also uh, scholars think was written around the same time period. The Gospel of Luke is a little different from the other Gospels in a few different ways. One way is that the Gospel of Luke is written by a Greek. Uh, The other Gospels were written by Jews. So Luke offers a different perspective than others. For example, he doesn't quote as many of the messianic prophecies as the other Gospels do. He's more concerned to look at it from a Gentile's perspective. Additionally, other Gospel writers were personal witnesses to the events of Jesus' life. Luke was not. He was a witness of the events of the early church, as he wrote about in the second volume of his account of the history of the ministry of Jesus in the early church, the book of Acts. And that makes it clear he did witness parts of that. In fact, Luke writes some of the narration in that book in the first person, indicating he was there for some of it. However, the gospel of Luke is based not because he was a first-hand witness, but because he carefully researched the history of Jesus' life, which we will talk about more as we go verse by verse through in a bit. So Luke wrote this gospel, and he also wrote the book of Acts. These can be considered to be a matching set, a two-volume series. Uh, Some have believed that Luke was planning or perhaps had begun work on a third volume, but that's not certain by any means. We don't know what we don't have. One thing that is certain is that between the gospel of Luke and Acts, Luke wrote the largest chunk of the New Testament, in terms of words written. That may surprise many of you. We often talk about Paul. He wrote 13 of the books of the New Testament, and there's only 27 books total, so it seems like Paul wrote half of the New Testament. However, since many of Paul's letters are short, it turns out that Luke wrote far more words than Paul did. In fact, only two Bible writers wrote more words than Luke, Moses and Ezra. Moses is credited with the first five books of the Bible. Ezra wrote the book that was named after him, and also First and Second Chronicles, which if you were in a reading plan like mine, you've been through them, and they are indeed long. By the way, out of all of those words Luke wrote, he seems to have a couple favorite phrases. One is preach the gospel. The other is a word that was very repetitive and that word was salvation so who was luke well it's not really been debated much for the first many hundreds of years of church history until more recently it was never really debated at all who luke was Um, but luke was the beloved physician that paul writes about in colossians 4 14 it says luke the beloved physician greets you as does demas 
2 Timothy 4.11 says, Paul is writing here again, Luke alone is with me. Go get Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful to me in ministry. And further, in Acts, which was written by Luke, he shows that he was close to Paul. Acts 16.10, it says, When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on. So Luke is placing himself there with Paul in the ministry. So let's look now at this letter's introduction, verse by verse, the Gospel of Luke. Starting at verse 1, And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, and that's verse 1. Here Luke is noting that there already exist written accounts of the ministry of Jesus. In fact, many, he uses the word many, many have given accounts. And apparently many people had heard and believed in Christ through those, those writings as well. And then in verse 2 he says, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, uh, sorry, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, have delivered them to us. Um, He's talking about accounts that were delivered by people who saw what happened, eyewitnesses, and also ministers of the word. Um, Many of those eyewitnesses were still available. Luke diligently gathered information. He's most likely interviewed all kinds of people, firsthand accounts, all the way probably from Mary the the mother of Jesus, to others that were involved. Um, It seems like he did a lot of due diligence. He drew from other sources. That's why we see similarities from Luke, uh, sometimes to Mark and Matthew in particular. Um, But he says, eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Here, the idea of ministers of the word does not necessarily imply some official person, like a pastor or apostle or something. Luke most certainly included in the phrase minister to the word those who had believed and lived out their faith by sharing the gospel with others. Um, So Luke uh, is not saying this is only something, message that can be told through authorized personnel. He's basically saying people who believed can share this. And I found this quote, I thought this was interesting, um, from the Preacher's Commentary series. It says, the story is told about a man who was so intrigued by a Christian friend at work that he came to him one day and asked him how he could find God. His friend said, you need a theologian. You'd better talk to my pastor. When he talked to the pastor, he was told, I'm not a theologian. I'm just a poor preacher who learned some things in seminary. I suggest you see my seminary professor. Undaunted, the man made an appointment to see the seminary professor at the start of the visit. He asked, are you a theologian? No, no, was the reply. I'm just a teacher. I get my material from all these theology books in my library. You better go and see some of the authors of these books. When he finally arranged an interview with one of the important authors, his first question again was, are you a theologian? No, no, says the author. I'm just a scientist who observes life and who writes about what I see. If you want a theologian, talk to someone who is living out the faith day by day. I think this points to what Luke is implying, says this quote. He got his story from the authentic theologians of his time. Beyond being eyewitnesses, they were living out their faith day by day. Really, the word theologian simply means one who studies God. Therefore, every Christian is called to be a theologian. So those first three verses again I'll read. And as much as 
many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Luke was not saying none of those other people who had written did a good job getting the information together, so I had to go do a more better job, because he wouldn't have said more better. That would be bad grammar. Right? My mom taught me good grammar. I wouldn't say that. Okay, no, he's recognizing the validity of their work. He's seeking to put together a sort of compilation of other gospel accounts, along with his own research, which involved interviewing eyewitnesses. And he's doing the work for someone he's referring to as the most excellent Theophilus. Theologian means one who studies God. Do you wonder what Theophilus means? It either means lover of God or loved by God. Oh, that all of us could be called Theophilus and theologian. Pray that God would grant you and I to be known as people who know him and love him. The same Theophilus is the one Luke addressed at the beginning of the book of Acts in chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And I'm not, begin, I'm not preaching from Acts this morning, but since I was looking at this and I had notes from when I preached through Acts years ago, I had noted at that time that in this first verse of Acts, it says all that Jesus began to do and teach. The implication here is that the work of Christ continues. He began to do and teach, and we are privileged to continue his work today. So who was Theophilus? Most likely, he was what we would call a patron of the arts, <laughs> a patron of the writing of Luke anyway. Uh, he may have provided income to Luke, the means for him to work on these accounts. And so he wrote an orderly account for Theophilus after having followed all things closely for some time past. Now, there are a bunch of theories of who Theophilus is, it seems like the greatest consensus is simply that he was one that provided income to Luke so that he could spend the time he did doing the research. Um, in the Lexham Bible Dictionary about Theophilus, it says uh, this, the honorific most excellent might indicate a measure of power or wealth. This expression is used elsewhere to describe Roman government officials, which suggests that Theophilus could have been one himself. Streeter speculates that he might have been Titus Flavius Clemens, the emperor Vespasian's nephew. Marx provides some evidence that Theophilus was none other than Herod Agrippa II. It's possible that he was simply a literary sponsor since most excellent could designate anyone with a position of means. So we don't know. <laughs> Those are some of the theories out there. Luke then writes for this Theophilus, whoever he was, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now we get to the main point of why Luke wrote this. Theophilus, whoever he was, was someone who had heard the gospel, and Luke wanted to provide a very thorough historic account or narrative of the ministry of Jesus so that Theophilus would have certainty. 
But in addition to Theophilus, Luke certainly was aware that this account would be widely published. So his purposes were to increase the confidence of the gospel, not in just one person, but for anyone who might read it and study it, including us. I am reminded of what John said his gospel was written, the reason was written for was in John 20, 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And Luke's reason to write was pretty much the same as John's, although it seems to me he's considering his audience as someone who has already been taught, where John seems to be considering that his readers will also include unbelievers. And I've often heard people say, well, the Bible is for believers, and unbelievers don't understand it. And there's a bit of truth in that, because until the Holy Spirit opens our hearts to receive the word, we won't believe it. Yet we must be careful that we don't think to ourselves, unbelievers can't understand the Bible, so we shouldn't invite them to Bible study. Or show them passages of Scripture, for they will not understand it. No, we must not think like that. And this is because it is through the Word that the Holy Spirit regenerates the hearts of those who believe. No one comes to Christ unless the Father draws him, and this is done through the reading and hearing of Scripture. Since the Scriptures were written with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we can be certain that there is value in studying them. For the unbeliever to increase our faith and to know God better, or for the, I'm sorry, for the believer to increase our faith and know God better, for the unbeliever, that perhaps the Holy Spirit will draw you to the Father by doing a work in your heart that causes you to believe in the gospel of Jesus. So to sum up what this introduction says, Luke wrote this book to offer a narrative of the ministry of Jesus Having consulted eyewitnesses and ministers of the gospel, he desired to write this orderly account so that his patron Theophilus and others would have certainty about what they had already been taught about Jesus. This passage shows us that for those who may at times feel their faith is weakening, they may increase their insurance of the faith and the assurance of the truth of the scripture by reading it, by listening to it, and by meditating on it. We need constant reminders of what is true and good. We need to increase our own certainty of the truth of these things. And hearing the word of God helps us grow in confidence that the gospel is true. Christians must hear and read God's word so that their faith will grow and their love of God will increase. As we study the Gospel of Luke together, may our faith in our Lord and King Jesus increase. The first section leading us into the Advent season will bring us through these glorious events leading to the birth of Jesus. We will begin with the marvelous experience of Zechariah the priest who encountered an angel of the Lord during his duty in the temple and was told of the son that would be born to him and his son would be named John, and he would be the one to prepare the way for Jesus. And we see that in verse 13. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. After that, we're going to look into another angelic encounter when Mary is greeted by the angel Gabriel, 
who would give her the amazing news about her role in the salvation of people that God had foreordained before the foundation of the earth was laid. And we will see the example of Mary set for each of us in her humble obedience and acceptance of her role in God's kingdom. In verse 38, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. We will review the occasion when Mary visited Elizabeth, who was carrying John the Baptist, who leaped in the womb as Mary spoke. And we will see the beautiful outpouring of Mary, Mary's praise that she offers in what we call the Magnificat, which begins like this. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And then we're going to learn about the birth of John the Baptist, whose birth was so extraordinary that people could not help but wonder what this all meant. In verses 65 and 66, fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And then we're going to learn about Zechariah's prophecy that he poured out when his mouth was opened by the Lord. And it ends this way. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high and give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And then finally, Christmas week will arrive at the great narrative of Luke chapter 2, where Jesus is born. The angels sing to the shepherds, and the shepherds make an immediate trip to Bethlehem to see this child. And after this, chapter 2, verse 20, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. In short, friends, we are going to be led by God's word into the Christmas season. And, and may we cherish this time and the encouragement of God's word. May our faith be increased as we, like Theophilus, read the careful accounting of these things that Luke, after much careful research and investigation, wrote down for the benefit of all who would read it. And may our hearts be filled with even more joy as we consider the astounding truth that God sent Christ into the world to save sinners. May we, with Mary and Zechariah, bring songs of praise to our God and Savior, for he has looked on us who believe with everlasting compassion and favor. The long and short of it is this, that God planned this great salvation from before time began, that, he, that those who he has chosen would be saved. He worked out his marvelous plan of salvation throughout human history, and even to this day his plan continues you see, he planned salvation long ago and began the plan throughout history. Before Adam had even sinned, the plan was in place to bring salvation to every person that God would save, those from every generation, those from every ethnic group, salvation for the slave, salvation for the humble, but even salvation for the proud who would humble themselves. 
Ahead of time, God was showing glimpses of what he would do. He showed the seriousness of sin when he expelled the people from the garden and when he flooded the entire world in the days of Noah. He showed his power and might and his desire to save people in the account of Joseph and in the Exodus and through the desert and his bringing of people into the promised land. He showed his continual calling of people to repentance through his many prophets, shared about his loving character in the many narratives of the Bible like Ruth and Esther and in the life of David. He was always calling his own people to himself, even when they were going after idols and when they turned their backs on him. He worked through many means to turn them back. And then we find this narrative of the birth of Christ. How meticulous the planning and foresight of God. He knew when the best time was to cause Jesus to enter the scene. Galatians 4.4 tells us when the fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. When the fullness of time. God knew exactly the timing that would be right. In that fullness of time, the perfect timing of God, Jesus came into the world. God's timing is perfect, and he calls each of those to whom he will save in his own good time. When we wonder why the timing seems so different with each believer, let us never forget, God knows the perfect time for every part of his salvation. And this includes each individual. Remember that he's the sovereign Savior. He chooses whom he will save and how he will save and when he will save and all of it for his glory. Could it be in the fullness of God's time that your time to believe is today? Perhaps you've heard of Jesus before. Perhaps you would say you know much about him. But you don't know him. You haven't believed for salvation. Perhaps you think the time isn't right for you, but today is the day for salvation. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. My friends, Jesus is the Savior for all who put faith in him. He calls you to believe today. Do not let your heart harden against the pleading of our Savior. And yet, he does not only call you, he commands you. Belief in Jesus is not an invitation, it is a command. He says to you, believe. John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That's not a gospel invitation, folks. It's a gospel command. Believe. My friends, Jesus is the Savior for all who put faith in him. The gospel of Luke is a long gospel. To preach it will not happen quickly, and in between we will probably return to Deuteronomy for times as well. But let us for a moment look at the very end of the gospel of Luke. In chapter 24, starting in verse 44, it closes in this way. Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds 
to understand the scriptures, and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Oh God, would you open our minds to understand the scriptures? Would you, Lord, grant salvation to us? If anyone hears his voice, do not harden your heart as Israel did in the rebellion. He is the saving God today. Do not delay. Come to Christ. He compels you to come. He commands you to believe. You may be here today and say, well, I will believe when I understand it a little more clearly. Do not delay. Believe what you can understand at this moment. And then strive to know him more. You may say, I want to enjoy my sin a little more and then I will come. Do not take that risk. Not only does your sin cause God's wrath to increase against you, by no means can you guarantee your life will end today or in 10 years from now or whenever. You must believe today. You may say, if only I had a more supportive family, then I could believe. Jesus calls you to love him even if that causes your family to hate you. You may say, let me find a spouse and have children, then I will come. What spouse and what children will bring you satisfaction and peace and the fulfillment that only comes from knowing Jesus? Do not wait. Believe on him this very day. If you are not fulfilled with Jesus, nothing will fulfill you. Jesus is Lord and King, and he is the Lord and King of salvation. He's the one that this is all about. The Gospel of Luke was written so that the one who reads it may have certainty, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And yet this certainty comes not from the words alone, but by the Spirit of God who wrote the words and who opens the minds of those who believe and calls them to faith in Jesus and draws them to everlasting life. Yes, today is the day. Do not delay in believing in Jesus. He's here to save. I have prayed and I will continue to pray that in these coming weeks as we look at this fantastic gospel together, the events leading to the birth of Jesus, that the Lord would open hearts and cause minds to comprehend and that in this very place we would be privileged to be firsthand witnesses as God's kingdom is built, as people come to faith in Christ and those with faith in Christ may have that same faith increased through the word of God, and that we all would have certainty of the things taught, and that certainty would increase as well. I make this commitment. Not one sermon is going to lack a call to come to Christ. I will preach the word for the building up of the saints, but you can always feel safe in bringing unbelievers along with you that they will be given the gospel message, whether it's in the book of Deuteronomy or in the book of Luke or a letter of Paul we're studying, I will call men, women, and children to put faith in Jesus Christ. This is the privilege I have to proclaim the gospel given by our sovereign Savior and call people to put faith in him. Luke wrote this book to offer a narrative of the ministry of Jesus, having consulted eyewitnesses and ministers of the gospel. He desired this orderly account so that his patron Theophilus 
and others would have certainty about what they had already been taught about Jesus. We can have assurance that the gospel is true when the Holy Spirit, through the word of God, confirms that our faith in Jesus is well-placed. We need constant reminders of what is true and good. We need to increase our own certainty of the truth of these things. And hearing the word of God helps us to grow in confidence that the gospel is true. And my prayer for this coming season leading up to Christmas season is that the Lord will continue to build us each in our faith. If you haven't put faith in Christ, I don't care if you've been in church for 80 years or one month or today's your first day. It doesn't matter if you think you know most of the Bible or you don't know much at all. Jesus commands you to believe. It's not an invitation. He says, believe. Today is the day for salvation. Many people have been saved and said, I sat in the church for 40, 50, 60, 70 years, and then I was saved. I can't explain that. I can't explain why the Holy Spirit didn't convince them 50 years ago. I can only say that the Holy Spirit could work in your heart today and increase your faith to the point where you can believe this gospel for salvation. I don't care what age you are. I don't care what your mental capacity or your health is. God will save you if you simply believe in Jesus Christ as you are commanded by Scripture to do. So why don't you do that today? Follow Christ. You will not regret it in the end. Nothing is better worth making a decision than to give up all you have and follow Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. God, I pray that as we...